House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, today we are uh, talking about uh, the JFK assassination, uh, and uh, we have an author with us today. He's written a book called On the Trail of Delusion. It's Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. Fred Litwin, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Wow. So um, this is your second book uh, kind of revolved around uh, the JFK assassination. What made you jump to this book? Like this is, this is a more specific book. The last one was that you were um, a conspiracy freak and now you've turned into a, a more rational person, I think, it, at the bottom line of it was. So what made you decide to go further into this? Well, there were uh, people, some of the, some of the uh, conspiracy theorists online who reviewed uh, my, my last book. And I had two chapters in my last book, well, one chapter on, on Jim Garrison and one chapter on Oliver Stone. And there were some critics who said, well, you know, I don't really like what Fred has written because he hasn't gone uh, to see the new documents uh, that were released by the Assassinations Record Review Board, particularly all the Jim Garrison files. And... And that was true. I hadn't, I hadn't gone through Jim Garrison's files. And, and at the same time that I, people were writing this, I got an email from somebody on a JFK list saying, all of Jim Garrison's files are now online at the National Archives. So I decided to start going through his files. And there's around 200 PDF files between 100 and 300 pages. And as I started reading Garrison's actual documents, his, his own memos, I started finding one crazy memo after another. And I started putting them aside until I had around 30 or 40 crazy memos from his investigation. And I decided, maybe I have a book here. And that's what got me into it. And I decided to travel across the United States. And I went to every archive uh, anywhere in the United States that had primary garrison documents. And I have looked at thousands of documents. Right. Well, and if I remember in the first book, you were sort of... Um you you were really um, talking about how um, Garrison, I think, was trying to just uh, prosecute an innocent gay man, and and, and that the Oliver Stone movie was very uh, homophobic in a way. I think that's kind of was the essence of what you were saying, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and so you know, Garrison went after, unfortunately, this innocent gay man and ruined his life in the process of charging him with conspiracy to kill Kennedy. It's a very, very sad case. And that, that's David Ferry, right? Is that what it's Well, Clay Shaw. Oh, Clay Shaw. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, he charged Clay Shaw. David Ferry was another one of his suspects in New Orleans, uh, but he died. Um, and that, that caused a, a Garrison to be suspicious of why he died, of course, it was natural causes, and that's but that's a whole other conspiracy theory. So, why, why, why are people so conspiratorial about this? Of course, it's the killing of the president, but all of these details come out. They seem so uh, pinpoint. They're so aimed at a certain uh, person or type of person or um, something like that, and and. Like where, like, where does this come from? What's it driving, and, and what do people hope to gain? 
Well, what's driving it, I think, is is a couple of things. First, there's there's some tribalism here, and people uh, like to be in tribes and believe they have some sort of secret knowledge. But this is the grandfather of all conspiracy theories, the Kennedy assassination. And this is the one that spawns everything else, and it's the one that can explain everything. So if you want to explain American foreign policy today, you can go right back to the JFK assassination. If you want to explain the military-industrial complex, if you want to uh, look at uh, corporate politics, whatever, it all goes back, or you can claim it goes back, to the JFK assassination. And so it's the, it's the, it's the Rosetta Stone of conspiracy. So now with Garrison, um, what's your thoughts on Jim Garrison? Like, um, I, from my own opinion and watching him on films and different things, I think he was uh, an absolute crazy man. I think he was nuts. Uh, and and I've been very vocal about that. I, I have no, um, I have, I just don't trust him at all. So, but you've done research. What what is your thoughts? Well, he he was in the um, Louisiana National Guard, and and uh, he had to. He was in the military. He was dismissed because of uh, mental problems, and uh, they said he was uh, severely uh, incapacitated by these mental problems, and he had to get treatment back in the 1950s. Um, and so he, he, he lucked out and became district attorney, but he was a conspiracy theorist. He, he had delusions of grandeur, and uh, it, it, he went after everybody. He, he, he decided that he would make enemies everywhere and, uh, and intimidate people. He intimidated the police and the judges and the, the mayor and everybody in New Orleans and to sort of gain more political power. And then he went down the JFK rabbit hole and destroyed people's lives, several people's lives he destroyed in the process. Um, it's, it's a horrific, horrific uh, case study of why you don't want a conspiracy theorist uh, in government. <laughs> a bit late now, but uh, <laughs> 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 I, just, I can say that. I mean, it's, it's gone too far now. My God, it's, what a mess it is now. So... Um, I just wonder, but um, so Garrison, uh, did he have some sort of a, uh, an agenda? Like, uh, like, do you know where he was as far as was he thinking that these uh, uh, people were like aliens or reptilian or kind of what was his, was there a new world order he was fighting against? Was it communists? Um, do we kind of well, know? Well, I think at first, you know, at first, I mean, he was enamored um with the Kennedy assassination because uh, people were writing books in the summer of 1966 and he knew that Lee Harvey Oswald lived in New Orleans for five months prior to the assassination. So he thought, okay, maybe if there was a conspiracy, it was incubated in New Orleans. And in fact, there were a couple of leads that go back to 1963 that Garrison investigated back then um, with the FBI. So he decided to go back and check out these leads and when they went nowhere, um, he sort of made up a conspiracy. And, uh, you know, at first, what's really, really crazy is at first, because some of the people, some of the suspects were, were, were gay people, he decided that there was a homosexual conspiracy. And, and he started to tell people that this was a homosexual conspiracy um, aimed at Kennedy because Kennedy was a virile, straight man, Etc. It, it was just ridiculous, and 
I think what happened was that as the critics of the war came to New Orleans to help him in his investigation, they sort of told him, look, that's a bit crazy. You've got to move away. The CIA is a much better target. Go for the CIA. And so he began to morph away from the homosexual angle into blaming it on the CIA. And I guess it would probably have been easier back in the 60s to get away with saying it was the gays' homosexual agenda and, and that because it was still illegal until 67. And, you know, even the, um, the psychology, the typical psychologist would say it was uh, something you needed to fix. It was the homosexual problem. Yeah, and in fact, I have a, a memo uh, written by... Um, uh, the assistant to the second-in-command of the Attorney General of Louisiana wrote a memo to J. Edgar Hoover saying that Garrison was running a, um, uh, a racket targeting homosexuals in New Orleans, um, basically uh, arresting them and getting money out of them. And could you please investigate? Um, they never did, but, you know, it, homosexuals were very, very easy targets for Garrison, and then it gave him uh, a variety of people who he can force to be uh, informants. And so there was a lot of awful stuff going on, and uh, you know, people in the gay community were, were sort of quite scared of Garrison. Wow. What made him pick Clay Shaw um, specifically? Well, it was the story of um, there was a there was an overweight attorney, Dean Andrews, in New Orleans, and he was in hospital the weekend of the assassination. He, was, he had double pneumonia, he was under sedation, and he claimed that he got a phone call that weekend from a Mr. Bertrand, a Mr. Clay Bertrand to ask him to go to Dallas and represent Lee Harvey Oswald. This was before Jack Ruby killed Oswald. And so the question was, who is this guy, Clay Bertrand, who called Jack Ruby, uh, who called Dean Andrews? And the only clues he said was this guy, Clay Bertrand, was gay. And so there was an attorney in Garrison's office who said, well, who's gay? Uh, who speaks Spanish? Like this guy, Bertrand, spoke Spanish. And Clay Shaw, he also has the same first name as Clay Bertrand. Maybe it's Clay Shaw. And Garrison believed that homosexuals, when they use a pseudonym, don't change their first name. So he became fixated that Clay Shaw was this elusive Clay Bertrand. Oh, boy. Nothing like and great with, investigation with, skills. <laughs> and, in fact, and Dean Andrews kept on telling him, it's not Clay, Clay Shaw. You've got the wrong guy. It's definitely not Clay Shaw. Um, but Garrison wouldn't listen. Wow. That's just crazy. Um, and now, so... Um, I have to say this because there's this thing about the, there being a uh, chapter on flying saucers. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have to ask, what is that? <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy story. Again, um, once Garrison had his investigation, a lot of prisoners would send him letters that they had information. And he also got a lot of anonymous letters and phone calls. I mean, people were coming out of the woodwork to tell him about certain leads. And he got two anonymous letters um, at different times, and um, they sort of weaved this story about conspiracy and the assassination, look at these people, and they talked about, look into this guy, Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman was a, uh, a writer, 
Um, he uh, lived in Oregon, and he uh, he he was a teacher. He, he also was a radio host. And he said, look into Fred Christman. And all of a sudden, Garrison became fixated. Who is this guy, Fred Christman? And uh, he eventually uh, subpoenaed him, brought him to New Orleans to testify, and uh, nothing came out of it because Fred Christman uh, was certifiably a teaching high school when Kennedy was killed. But where flying saucers come in is back... The flying saucer craze started in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold when he was up in his plane and he saw these flying saucers. Well, a few months after that, this Fred Christman was working as a harborman uh, getting logs at Puget Sound. And he concocted with one of his friends a hoax, saying that uh, they had seen these flying saucers and they excreted some metal and their dog was scared and uh, they created this big, big story. But what made it tragic was they convinced Kenneth Arnold uh, that it was real, and he contacted the military, and the military sent out two investigators, and they quickly realized it was all ridiculous nonsense, but on their flight back to base, their plane crashed, and two, two men were killed, and all because of this hoax, and uh, the FBI were called in, they investigated, Chrisman admitted that it was all a hoax, um, but they decided that they couldn't charge him with a crime. Um, because it was just an accident. Hmm. Just a crazy and so he became one of Garrison's chief suspects, and uh, it was all uh, nonsense. I think, I think, in fact, Fred Christman was the one who wrote the letter just to get publicity out of Garrison. Oh, it's just all crazy, you know. Um, it's, so, okay, so what have you found that's uh, new or um, something that's uh, added to the case well, and there's so, there's so much new in my book, and I've got all the documents in my book. My book is full of documents. What's, what's really interesting, and I, it helps to, I guess, uh, I live in Ottawa, Canada, um, to investigate part of this case. But after Clay Shaw was, uh, was arrested, March 1st, 1967, three days later, there was a communist-controlled newspaper in Rome, Piazza Sera, and they ran a six-day series of articles claiming that Clay Shaw was on the board of directors of this World Trade Center in Rome, which was really a CIA front to find right-wing extremists. And so they ran this six-part series, and in fact, Clay Shaw was on the board of this World Trade Center. And uh, Garrison saw that, and that helped convince him that the CIA was behind everything. Well, also... The articles allege that there was a Montreal lawyer, Louis Bloomfield, also rep also the major shareholder of this company. Um, in fact, he wasn't a major shareholder, but he was a lawyer representing shareholders. Well, to make a long story short, Bloomfield lived in Montreal. He died in 1984, and ultimately his papers were donated to the Library and Archives Canada in, um, right after that, until they were opened in 2005. And I've been through his papers, and he, I have hundreds of his letters that he wrote to the managers of this World Trade Center, and there's nothing in there to support the allegations of that communist newspaper. And what makes it very, very tragic was that he was aware of the rumors about himself uh, in 19, 
seven, and he was horrified by these rumors, and uh, the rumors ultimately traveled um, from conspiracy theorists in Italy to, um, if you remember, Lyndon LaRouche? Right. He ran a horrible sort of uh, conspiratorial left-wing organization back in the 70s and 80s. He published articles saying that Bloomfield was head of an assassination bureau. And uh, Bloomfield wrote to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police about these articles because he was scared for his physical safety. So I have all of these documents uh, in my book, and it helps prove that uh, there was nothing to this communist um, newspaper series. And in fact, it very well might have been a KGB operation to help convince people the CIA was behind the assassination. Oh, well, Russia did it. <laughs> it oh. it's, it's, a, it's a truly incredible story, and I have CIA documents in my book I've got State Department cables. I've got all the primary documents about this in my book. Now, you're going to get a lot of uh, pushback on this sort of story. Um, so how are you going to handle that? Like, what, what, what's, what's, what's your worst fear? Like, what, do you, what kind of things are you expecting well, to get? You know, there'll be a, a lot of the pushback comes from people who won't read my book. And, and that happened last time. It was pushed back on some of the conspiracy sites. Um, in fact, there was one, uh, one uh, conspiracy theorist who would only review the reviews of my book because he wouldn't read my book. And so there, there's already pushback already, but um, because a lot of conspiracy theorists won't read stuff like mine, um, it makes it hard for them to argue against me. So I'm hoping... That, the old, that I can really goad them into actually reading my book um, so they could, we could finally uh, debate and address some of the central issues um, that I raise. That's, that's the big challenge. I, I, I have the documents in my book, um, and I've been across the U.S., so I, I've, I have the documents to argue my case. Yeah, I think that a lot of the people um, that have a conspiracy or a theory or an idea um, they're locked into it, right? They don't really want to have that chipped apart because that's kind of their identity, I think. Yeah, they're, they're, exactly. They're, they are. That's part of their tribe. It's 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 part of who they are. They have this secret knowledge, and if you challenge them that this so-called secret knowledge that they have and share with others is not right, they get very defensive. They get very angry. I get a lot of angry uh, comments all the time in social media. Um. But all these people won't, won't touch my book. And, uh, and I've also tried very hard um, to make sure that, that my book was priced um, appropriately for everybody. My, the e-book of my book is only $2.99. So I've made it cheap. very, very affordable for everybody. Yeah, and that's cheap because it's like almost 500 pages, right? So. Yeah, it's just under 500 pages. Yeah, so that's a pretty good price for it. Wow. So uh, what, what do you hope people get out of it if they do read it? Well, it's, 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 the Garrison story is one of the most um, horrible examples of, jurist, uh, of, uh, of, of errors in American jurisprudence. Um, it's the, an awful story, and people don't know it. And so, it, they, again, it's, it's a warning sign 
um, about when you elect people, whether it's a district attorney or anybody else, be careful who you elect. Make sure you understand what some of their crazy views are, um, because if you elect them, you're going to have to live with some pretty, pretty outrageous stuff. And in Garrison's case, it wasn't he. All, he ruined Clay Shaw's life, but there were other people that he ru really, really ruined as well. There was a Cuban man, Carlos Briere, in New Orleans. His wife was so worried about him being arrested by Garrison, she had a miscarriage. There were people who lost their jobs because of Garrison. Uh, there was there was one 21-year-old who I talked to, still alive today. He's now 74. Uh, Albo Buff. I talked to him. He was bribed by Garrison, and they actually his lawyer was smart enough to put it on catch it on tape. So they had a tape bribe. And Garrison's men followed him around continually. He couldn't get a job because Garrison's men would visit potential employers and tell them not to hire him. And so they forced him to come in and sign a statement that he was not bribed. It was the only way he can get Garrison off his back and get a job. Still alive. I talked to him. He'll tell that story to anybody. Yeah, so there, he was really out of control. There was nobody that really um, kind of reined him in at all, was there? Well, nobody would, not only that, not only did nobody rein him in, but he really discovered the power of the district attorney. So he, he had the power to subpoena anybody to come to testify before the grand jury. And one of his favorite techniques was to have you testify before the grand jury you couldn't bring in a lawyer. You couldn't take the fifth. And he would then, when you were finished, charge you with perjury, which is a felony offense. Once you were charged with perjury, you would have to get a lawyer. It would cost you money. But you also couldn't travel out of the parish. You'd have to get permission to travel. And it made it hard to get a bank loan, to get a job. It was a very, very tough thing for people to deal with. And then at the last minute, he would... He would drop the charges. And so people were, were scared of Garrison. You never knew what he could do. He, he had a lot of power, and he was not afraid to use it. Um, and so I have a lot of stories in my book of how he intimidated witnesses, bribed witnesses, uh, used his power to scare people. Um, it's very, very sad. It's frightening, in fact. So now he was he was charged, wasn't he, or was he? I thought wasn't he charged for bribery or something? Yeah, he was uh, charged um, um, with with uh, with bribery. Uh, there was uh, basically back then pinball machines were popular, and uh, there was a lot of gambling, uh, illegal gambling on pinball machines. And so he was indicted for bribery, and they had his former chief investigator wore a wire. And they taped around 375 conversations with Garrison. He took around $147,000 over the years. Back then, that was real money. And uh, he was charged, and um, he fired his lawyers halfway through the trial, took over his own defense, and um, convinced the jury that he was not guilty. He was acquitted. Um, but I put uh, uh, one of the conversations on tape in my book, which is quite damning. Yeah, it's just crazy, um, but it shows you the power that someone can have in a position like that. Um, 
and, and you can you can just say what you want and get away with what you want, really. Yeah, and I think people uh, in New Orleans appreciated the fact that he was uh, entertaining. You know, every day he would be in the newspapers with some big headline where he would accuse somebody of something, charge somebody with something. He was entertaining, and the people of New Orleans uh, sort of liked that. You know, he, he was also a very good talker, a smart guy. So he could think on his feet. He had a deep, booming voice. He was very well read. He could quote from Shakespeare, and he had a very good sense of humor. So he was the perfect interview target for anybody because he would always say something funny. And so he entertained people, but underneath that, that veneer was uh, a deeply disturbed man. Hmm. You know, he, he sounds a lot like the current president, except for um, you said he's intelligent. I was going to ask if he's a relative. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay out of American politics. Oh, yeah. Um, now, uh, so have you? Did you ever talk to John Barber about this, or anything? He, he's the one that did the um, the Dick Garrison tapes. Um, have you had any opinion or any comment from him? I, I have not talked to him. I've, I've, I have watched uh, the Garrison tapes and I've watched his stuff. Um, I have to laugh because uh, last year he put up on YouTube a video that he had discovered new Garrison documents. And he was posting documents on his website. But, of course, they weren't new. They were the old Garrison files. And he made a video about Fred Christman and how Fred Christman was the key to the case. He's taken down all those videos. I don't know why. Um, I, I haven't talked to him. I don't think he, you know, I'm, at some point maybe I will and should. We're actually friends on Facebook. Um, but I think that he just doesn't appreciate um, uh, the nonsense that was being spouted from Garrison. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it just sounded like he was kind of a little off, and, and he got away with what he wanted, and, uh, um, you know, it, it's just too bad that this happens. Um, just a, it's an amazing story. Um, so now there's there was one other part I wanted to talk about, and that was the uh, former Marine. Um, that was right, really, yes. What, can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, there were a couple of authors um, in 1965-66, uh, Richard Popkin and Harold Weisberg, who wrote that um, there were perhaps there was a second Oswald. Now, you know, like any major investigation, this was a nationwide investigation. It's not surprising that you get all sorts of reports of people seeing Oswald in different locations. Um, you see this in any inv major investigation where people call with tips. Um, that don't pan out. And so there were reports of Oswald being here, there, and wherever. And instead of chalking it up to, well, that's what happens when there's major publicity, these two authors said, well, there must be a second Oswald. And this would explain um, why there's all these sightings. There's a second Oswald, and, and it's trying to do things that are incriminating to make it appear like he is guilty. Well, these authors were in touch with Garrison, and Garrison started believing that perhaps there was a second Oswald. And one of his candidates of who that second Oswald was was Kerry Thornley, who was a Marine buddy of Oswald, serving the Marines with Oswald in 1959 um, out in California. 
and Thornley had lived in New Orleans for a couple of weeks in September 1963, and Garrison started to believe that perhaps Thornley um, was impersonating Oswald in New Orleans. It was all nonsense. Um, Thornley had never met Oswald in New Orleans, um, and, and Garrison decided to actually charge him with perjury for denying it. And it, it's a horribly silly story, and Thornley uh, was subpoenaed, he was arrested, he had to post bond, he had to come um, to, to testify, and, and um, Garrison eventually dropped the charges years later. Um, but it's a really silly story, and I tell it with a, a lot of documents again um, from the case. So was Garrison ever uh, successful on any of these ideas or theories he had um, surrounding the, uh, the JFK assassination? Did, did he have any success at all? Well, he had one major success, one huge success. Um, and the success was that he eventually wrote a book um, about his life and about uh, his investigation, and Oliver Stone ate it up. And so his big success was Oliver Stone paying Garrison a quarter of a million dollars to license his book for a movie. That was a huge success for Garrison. But but in court, or um, he never had any, did he? No. Well, the only, the only success he had in court was um, was in, he 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 charged that lawyer Dean Andrews with perjury. Uh, because Dean Andrews wouldn't wouldn't say that Clay Shaw was Clay Bertrand, and and Dean Andrews had made so many contradictory statements over the years that of course he was convicted of perjury, uh, not because we knew what he what what the truth was, but he just said all these crazy things. To Garrison, that was a huge victory. Um, uh, to to Dean Andrews, it really you know helped uh, ruin him to a large degree. Hmm. It's terrible. So whatever happened. That was it. There's nothing else. Yeah. What happened to Garrison? How did he? How did he? How did his life end up? Well, his life. You know, he, he, Garrison basically after um, he was defeated in 1972 when he ran for district attorney, he was defeated by Harry Connick, Harry Connick Sr., who was the father of Harry Connick Jr. And then Garrison eventually uh, was elected to uh, to become a judge. Um, in, in Louisiana, and from there he he tried to convince the House Select Committee on Assassinations that his leads were really, really good, and he, he wrote many memos to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and none of his leads panned out, um, and they even wrote about how investigation was, and so the only avenue left after that was for him to write a book on the trail of the assassins which came out in 1988, and Oliver Stone licensed that and came out in 1991 um, with his movie JFK, which Garrison was in. Garrison had a cameo role playing Earl Warren, and right after the movie, Garrison uh, died at the age of 70. Hmm. Pretty, pretty interesting story all the way around. Um... So now, Fred, do you have a website or something that people can go to if they um, want to find out about you or more about your writing? Yeah, it's onthetrailofdelusion.com, 
and I have a lot of documents on my website. I have a blog that I keep up every day with primary garrison documents, pictures, reviews, etc. A lot of really interesting material. So it's on the trail of delusion.com. Fantastic. Now, so we'll have that on our website as well. People listening, uh, they can do one click, and and uh, it'll take you right to your website and go from there. Um, well, thank uh, you. It's been a it's, it's it's a pretty interesting story, and and I hope it does well. It's good to have some rational thought behind the JFK assassination and Jim Garrison. So, uh, oh, thank you very much. It's an incredible story. Okay, our guest has been Fred Litwin, and the book is On the Trail of Delusion. It's Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much, Alan. It's been great to great to be with you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.